Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G. You can call me Allison Gill now, though. I don't work for the government, so F the Hatch Act. I was smashing the Crotch Act, but I don't have to anymore. I'm coming to you from a hotel on the road, so it's a little bit echoey in here. I apologize for that. And I have a couple of stories for you. But then I wanted to play a couple of interviews I had earlier this week. You probably may have already heard them. If you haven't, I really want you to listen to them. That's why I'm dropping them in this show as well. I talked to Alexander Vindman, absolute hero. And we talk a lot about um, how what we saw during the first impeachment uh, is connected to the second impeachment and COVID. And, you know, he just draws these incredible through lines through everything, the entirety of the conspiracy. And it's it's really good. And then I also talked to Tristan Snell this week, who is a, a reporter who, who has a lot of inside information on what's going on with Matt in the Matt Gates world. So he's going to kind of be our sabotage today because I'll come back and I'll pick do my picks for the Fantasy Indictment League, or maybe I'll do the picks before we listen to the interviews so you have them going into there. But anyway, it's, it's uh, going to be um, a, a really good show with some incredible interviews. But I do have some news, so let's jump in with just the facts. All right, first up, as it turns out, the House Democrats and the Oversight Committee can get some of Trump's tax records from Mazars, which is his accounting firm. This has been going on, as you know, for probably since the kitchen days. It's been going on for so long. The U.S. House should be able to access some of Donald Trump's tax returns through that subpoena to Mazars. And this is according to a federal judge in D.C., and this was a ruling on Wednesday. It's a resounding loss for Trump given that the accounting records appear to cover financial information that the former president has fiercely protected. And it's a major step towards resolving the long-running fight over access to Trump's tax records. And don't confuse this with the House Ways and Means <laughs> fight, because if you remember, going back to the Mueller she wrote days, we had a bunch of stuff going up through the courts. We had a subpoena from House Oversight to Mazars for Trump's taxes and accounting papers, but we also had a subpoena by the House Ways and from the House Ways and Means Committee. And the House Ways and Means Committee is the one that shall furnish the taxes. Remember, we talk about that hundred-year-old law that says when they ask, they the IRS shall furnish the taxes. And so that's not this. Right. So when, you know, people are kind of conflating the two, I've seen a lot of people say, why are they only giving part of these taxes over, uh, you know, to the House Oversight Committee? They it's the law says that they shall hand them over. That's not no, that's not this. This they actually need a legislative purpose here. And the judge has sort of split, you know, 
um, split this down the middle, right? They say, hey, you can have some of the tax returns, but you can't have eight years worth, okay? You're doing oversight. Uh, when he was president, you want to do oversight of the, his emoluments and uh, his D.C. hotel, D.C. International Hotel in downtown D.C. Okay, cool. You can have the tax returns that pertain to those years, 2017, 2018. You can't have anything from before he was president. But this is a huge win. You know, constitutionally speaking. And of course, Trump has already filed to appeal this decision. It's going to take more time. And I know people are upset. But I have to, again, like I said, when we went through this with uh, Mazars and the Ways and Means Committee, it doesn't really... This is for oversight purposes, long haul, long term oversight purposes. This isn't a criminal investigation into his taxes. The Manhattan District Attorney has his taxes. The DOJ has his taxes. Like we don't have to, you know, we're not waiting to prosecute him based on this. Make sense? So don't be like, oh, he's never going to be held accountable. These particular subpoenas from Mazars from House Oversight and House Ways and Means isn't to hold him accountable. Right? Make sense to get the truth out. I mean, we can't impeach him anymore. I mean, we could, you can, but you know, the Senate won't convict. That's why they didn't convict him on the second impeachment was because you can't, they said, we don't believe you can impeach and convict a, a, a person who isn't the president anymore. You can, that was their excuse not to, but anyway, with, you know, the case, uh, let me read here from CNN. The case is a continuation of the House tax returns case that traveled up to the Supreme Court. Now District Judge Amit Mehta has weighed in the House uh, for the House request for Trump's financial records against the standards laid out by the Supreme Court in its 7-2 ruling last year. With that Supreme Court opinion in mind, Mehta upheld parts of the House subpoena that were targeted at the lawmaker's stated need for considering legislation and, and uh, around foreign emoluments clause issues and the GSA lease at the Trump Hotel in the old post office building. The committee can also access some financial documents from 2017 and 2018, according to Judge Mehta. They ruled the subpoena of Mazars in some ways should be treated like any subpoena, especially as the committee investigates Trump, uh, Trump's Washington, D.C. hotel lease with the federal government. It says, quote, the committee has presented detailed and substantial evidence the president, uh, at least through his business interests, likely received foreign payments during the term of his presidency. That's regarding the emoluments clause, right? The judge noted the Trump organization uh, gave to the Treasury Department more than $400,000 in payments during Trump's presidency, validating the committee's belief that the president uh, received some foreign payments during his presidency. And so therefore, the committee is not engaged in a baseless fishing expedition, according to the judge. So those will be handed over, except, nope, there, Trump just, as we knew, he would, I mean... Trump's going to appeal everything all the way up, all, every time, right? So now this will go to the appellate court. And uh, we'll keep an eye on it for you. But again, you know, this is this is stuff we want to know, but stuff that, you know, I mean, they, they, after they do all this investigating and then we get the stuff, they could make a criminal referral. It'll be a year, maybe two. We need, we need and probably will see more fervent action from other investigatory agencies who already have this information. Uh, next up, a Scottish judge just resurrected an effort to investigate Trump for money laundering in Scotland. The Scottish court Wednesday gave activists, Wednesday was a bad day for Trump. They gave activists the green light to continue their effort to use anti-money laundering statutes to investigate the financing of Trump's golf course. 
While Trump built his reputation in New York, they said, the gravitational center of his business empire has shifted towards Scotland in the last decade with two courses that he operates that are requiring huge amounts of cash to maintain. By some estimates, Trump would have had to spend half of his available cash to finance his 2014 purchase of Turnberry. Where'd he get the money? And he has spent more than $400 million on Turnberry and, uh, and a second course in uh, oh, Aberdeenshire. Uh, you, you're going to, I'm sorry, I butchered that. Send in corrections. Uh, anyway, that's along the windy North Sea coast, which he built from scratch. Neither course has ever turned a profit. Both courses bleed money. They are totally money laundering enterprises, right? So the judges cleared the way uh, for this to go forward. In the UK, government investigators have the power to find out where the money to buy and develop Trump's courses came from using something called an unexplained wealth order. Essentially, a mandate to peer into a particular person's finances if there's a reasonable suspicion something isn't quite right. It can't be wielded against just anyone. It's designed to make inquiries into the finances of politically exposed persons suspected of money laundering. It has been invoked several times in London, including to examine how the wife of jailed ex-Azerbaijani government official had managed to afford a £16 million shopping spree at Harrods. In February 2020, lawmakers from the Scottish Green Party began agitating for the Scottish government to invoke the UWO against Trump. The unexplained wealth order, that is. The movement didn't gain much steam until after he left office, and then Patrick Harvey, the Greens' co-leader in the Scottish Parliament, pushed a vote on the matter. Harvey cited a report from the transparency advocacy group Avaz that detailed Trump's ties to people accused of financial improprieties, such as his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who was convicted of money laundering <laughs> and the questions surrounding the financing of his money, you know, money losing course. These are money losers for him. Anyway, interesting stuff. And finally, this is cool. President Joe Biden on Wednesday nominated acting solicitor general Elizabeth Prelegar to be his solicitor general. That's the Supreme Court lawyer, right? On a permanent basis. Prelegar served in the position on an acting basis since January, arguing two cases before SCOTUS in that role. She's a, a seasoned appellate lawyer who served from 2014 to 2019 as an assistant to the Solicitor General. If confirmed, she would be only the second woman to lead the Solicitor General office on a permanent basis. The other, Elena Kagan. She was Solicitor General from 2009 to 2010. And she's, we know who she is now. And during her prior tenure at the Justice Department, Prologar was tapped to serve on a little investigation as one of 17 angry Democrats, Robert Mueller, the Robert Mueller investigation. <laughs> Yeah. She's also spent time as a partner at Cooley, LLP, and an associate of, of Hogan Levels. And she's taught a course at Harvard Law School on SCOTUS and appellate advocacy. So she's a badass. She's going to be our Solicitor General. So that's pretty awesome. All right, let's do this. Let's play the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, wait, it's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey, they can't. It's gonna be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm gonna be dead. All right, you know that I have Gates this week, right? You, I, I mean, it's just inevitable. I'd be, I'm almost wondering if he's already indicted by the time you hear this. I don't want to jinx it though, so probably not. But I am on technically on vacation, so it would be, be would be a good time. But I, I you know, I did have this incredible uh, discussion with Tristan Snell about when we can expect that. And uh, I'm going to play that interview for you. He, he's got really good inside information that it's going to be sooner rather than later. Uh, because we were all wondering if, if the uh, 
you know, the postponement of Greenberg's sentencing was going to push that out. We were all thinking, God, what if he's not picked up? What if he's not picked up until October or November, right? Well, he's got some information that's that's not the case. It's not going to take that long. But he's going to gate Gates is on my fantasy indictment league. And I'm also going to put angles on there because he's pretty great. And um, Ingersoll, right? Those are three guys involved down there. And I don't think Weisselberg's going to cooperate because guess what? We found out this week, this is some more news, that uh, prosecutors, that Weisselberg may have lied when he had limited immunity in the hush money catch and kill case, Stormy Daniels case. Remember when he, he got limited immunity and that put Cohen behind bars? Cohen committed the exact same crime that Trump did? That's a ready-made case. I don't know why we just aren't charging Trump with that right now or the obstruction of justice in volume two. But anyway, Engels, Ingersoll, Engels. Um, and since Weisselberg, I, you know, now he's less likely to flip or he's, you know, because he previously lied to prosecutors, he might not be a, that great of a witness. I think they've got plenty of others, but I don't know what's going to happen now. I don't know how the Manhattan district attorney is going to deal with that, but I'm not going to put Weisselberg plea agreement um, on my fantasy indictment team this week. Instead, I think a Barrick plea agreement, a Tom Barrick plea agreement. I've heard rumors he's singing. So I'll put that on there. That gives me four, right? Gates, Engels, Ingersoll, plea agreement, Barrick. Mm. I don't know. I don't know who else to... Let's go with... Let's go with Ivanka. I'm going to call her. All right. That's my, those are my fantasy indictment league picks. And by the way, somebody was indicted um, uh, this week. Let me pull this up. I just want to tell you since this is the indictment spar- uh, part of the show. I think his name is Lazaro. Yeah, Tony, it was Tony Lazaro. He was indicted uh, five counts of sex trafficking a minor. So he uh, was arrested in Minnesota. Uh, he's a GOP strategist, young guy, did a lot of commentary on Kavanaugh, <laughs> which is just so ironic. And anyway, he's been picked up and arrested. So that's good. All right, everybody, I want you to hear this interview. Um, the first one here is going to be Tristan Snell. We're going to go over all, all the stuff on Matt Gates. This is going to be uh, considered the sabotage of the show because, you know, I mean, he's got such great inside information. And then right after that, I'm going to play the, uh, the Alexander Vindman interview for you. I hope you enjoy that. And, uh, I'm going to sign off now. I'm going to let you listen to these interviews and everybody, please, you'll enjoy them. They're really, really good interviews if you haven't heard them. So, uh, I will see you all next week. Uh, I've been Allison Gill and this is Mueller. She wrote. Hey everybody. Welcome back. I'm, I'm happy to be joined today by CNN and MSNBC commentator, founder of MainStreet.Law, and he prosecuted Trump University successfully at the New York Attorney General's office. Please welcome Tristan Snell. Tristan, welcome for the first time on The Beans. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I've been following you for a long time, so I'm really excited to have this conversation. And and today we're going to be talking not about Matthew Gertz, bless his soul. (laughs) Poor guy. Poor guy. That's so rough. (laughs) I know. We're going to be talking about Matt Gates. Oh, him. And Gates. Gates. Oh, that yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah, the other guy. The other guy. Now, you've been tweeting that we're getting close to a, a Gates charging decision. We, we've had public reporting out in the Twitter sphere and in, in, in the media that a charging decision would come in July and August, July or August. Then we had Joel Greenberg say, 
three months isn't nearly enough time to tell you about all the crimes. <laughs> and so they pushed his sentencing back and both sides agreed to this because apparently he's he's offering substantial assistance. And I don't think they would take him from 33 to seven counts if he if he weren't or nope. six counts, something it's six counts now. Yeah, six counts now. First of all, everyone's really interested in and I, I know you can't reveal sources, but I'm assuming you have sources. You're not just saying this stuff and putting it out there. But where where are you getting this? And I also want to talk about this recent Politico article that seems to say that the Gates investigation is stuck. Yeah, first, in terms of, you know, what I'm hearing, there have been a number of folks that have come forward to me. Once I started tweeting more about Gates, especially within the past few days, a lot of people DM'd me. And then also there's, you know, a certain amount of intelligence that one can get through the government enforcement grapevine. I'm no longer in government, but by virtue of my past work and and some of the present work that I do for private clients representing, uh, there's a number of folks that are victims of white collar crime uh, whom I represent. We believe that, uh, you know, I, I, I am in, I'm in regular touch with, with folks that are in the government enforcement world. And so there's, uh, you know, there are some sources that I'm able to, to tap into that way and some things I've been able to hear, even though everybody's really playing things close to their vests at this point. And with regards to this Politico story, which I, I read and I was like, there's, this isn't, this can't be correct. And, and you, you've posited that too, but you've got stronger sourcing and you, you've told me pre-interview, you've got more information on this, on the theory which you tweeted out that this is a Matt Gates sort of planted story. Yeah, I, I, I've managed to get some additional intel that suggests that that is correct, that corroborates my take. That started off as, a, as analysis by me, but that other people then proceeded to come forward and, and let me know that I was actually correct, which is always fun when my hunches end up being correct. Sadly, when you do this stuff for long enough, and you learn how the sausage gets made, and by which I mean not just the politi- the legal stuff, but the political stuff, which I have done on and off at different points in my career. I know what it looks like when a political office manages to get a, a piece spun the way that they wanted to. And there's also just the fact that like no nobody close to the investigation on the prosecution side would have said any of the things that were in that article And then there's just a couple other things. One is that, as you were pointing out just a minute ago, Greenberg went from 33 counts down to six. There's no way that the prosecutors have suddenly now decided that he's a bad witness. They have been, they spent a lot of time with that man, for better or for worse, and they already have decided to cast their lot with him. That is a huge reduction in the number of counts. They are only rolling forward with him because they do think that he'll be a perfectly fine witness. Of course, he's a scumbag and he, he's not a good dude. All cooperating witnesses are criminals. Yeah, I mean, that's that by, by definition, and it just depends on how bad, you know, what is it that they did, you know, and, and there's quite a lot of degree. Some of them were just kind of in the mix of it and some of them were the key criminal players. In this case, you know, Greenberg was a pimp. Let's just let's just call it what it is as opposed to using all this all the euphemisms around sugar daddies and things like that this was this was these were he was a pimp and these women are victims of sex trafficking and you wouldn't see him have that much of a count reduction if they didn't feel like he was a good witness and the, and the whole thing with trying to sort of cast doubt on the credibility 
of uh, of this one victim by talking about what she may or may not be doing for work these days just struck me as as the worst kind of terrible blame the victim victim shaming thing that we see all the time in in sexual offense cases where the female victim's credibility gets called into question and it, it this really really looked like a very dirty dc uh, smear job. Yeah, well, it, it seems to me that uh, at least there seems to be a pattern of preying on corruptible, quote unquote, women. Right. We can talk about uh, Playboy Bunny or Broidy's one point six million dollar abortion with a with a with a playmate or they're all in they're all sex workers. You know, sex work is legit work. We're very we're very sex positive on this show. But that seems to be and 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 it's not just the women either, that the, these folks recruit, like Trump, for example, Gates, for example, Greenberg, recruit corruptible people to do their bidding so that they, it's, it's, a, it's a mafia tactic, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. But this is the kind of, this is the kind of tactic that is often seen in these kind of cases to basically attack the women yeah. that have come forward in one way or another. So that started off as a hunch, on my part, as my analysis of that Politico piece. And then I had some people come forward and tell me that they knew much more about it and that, that in fact, I am correct, that that was very much a one-sided piece that was sourced from Gates and his people, the defense counsel, his political team, et cetera, and that that's where all of that was coming from. So, you know, that, that piece muddied the waters a lot but we really, really need to discount it. If you're following this matter, that piece was really not to be trusted, that intel was very much wrong and slanted with an agenda. Yeah, and that was backed up today by new reporting, right? This yes. isn't a stuck this isn't a stuck investigation. No. So vindicated by phone calls and DMs you get, and then bam, we get this massive story. Yes. With a lot more evidence, a lot more going on. And I wanna I wanna talk about what's in this report. And then a little bit about the, the Freedom of Speech Tour. But I have to take a quick break. Tristan, will you stay with me? Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks. Everybody, we'll be right back. Hello, everyone. It's Allison Gill. And this portion of The Beans is brought to you by BetterHelp. They provide professional online therapy, and it's amazing. The counselors at BetterHelp are available to help you overcome any obstacles that might be holding you back from living your best life. They can assess your needs quickly and assign you to an experienced licensed therapist within 24 hours. So you can actually begin communicating really quickly. And you know, I learned to seek help through my PTS and my anxiety instead of trying to, to go through it by myself. And it's really hard. It can be really tough to ask for help. BetterHelp makes it easy. And that's why it's so wonderful. It's convenient, right? From anywhere, you can log into your account and message your counselor. So, you know, if you're traveling all the time, no problem. You get timely and thoughtful responses. You can arrange weekly video or phone sessions. It's more affordable than offline counseling. Financial aid is available. So they make it really accessible. And you can always change your counselor if you need to. It's easy and free to do that, and most providers don't allow for that. They make it really difficult. You have to jump through a lot of hoops, but they don't at BetterHelp. It's awesome. So visit BetterHelp's website and read some testimonials like this one from user WI, who says, Lily might be the first therapist I've ever had that actually made me feel heard and understood. She's very patient and insightful and genuinely cares for her clients. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Daily That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And you can join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced, licensed professional. Special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dailybeans. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking with the founder of MainStreet.Law, 
Again, prosecuted Trump University at the New York Attorney General's office, Tristan Snell. And before the break, Tristan, we were talking about this Politico story. You had sort of posited, and I do this all the time, I'm very speculative as a quote unquote journalist myself. I call it putting beans on stuff. I'm like, put some beans on it. This is my super space beans. Call it a tinfoil hat. And it always ends up coming true. And yours did when you posited that Politico, the Politico story saying that the Gates investigation was stuck, it was on hold, it was going nowhere or whatever, was a, a seated by Matt Gates and his, his defense attorneys, et cetera. And that I had insinuated was borne out today in this new reporting. Remind us where this reporting came out of and what it says. So this was from ABC News today, and they have a very well-sourced story there where they have managed to get access to a lot of, uh, at least some of the very large amount of evidence that the prosecutors have in this matter. Once Joel Greenberg uh, decided to cooperate and and work with the federal prosecutors, he is, is often true in this case for any witness or cooperator, then you're handing over your devices to the prosecutors, to the FBI, and then they're basically downloading everything from your phone, from your computer, et cetera, et cetera. And so they have everything. They have photos, they have videos, they have emails, they have text messages, they have Venmo and Cash App payments. So it's, you know, it's voluminous. And just even a smidgen of this was made available to the journalists for ABC. And uh, they were able to see records uh, showing Greenberg sourcing for and paying for uh, sex with these uh, women that he was finding online uh, and then making them available and uh, in turn uh, getting payment from other individuals, including Matt Gates, and fills in some of the gaps and things that we already knew. It corroborates other reporting that had been done previously on this issue. This is probably the deepest dive that anybody has had into any of the into any of the evidence that has been accumulated here. But there is, make no mistake about it, there is, there is a very, very large pile of digital crumbs that were left by the perpetrators of this whole scheme. And they did not cover their tracks. I don't even think they were trying to necessarily. Although there's the really creepy things about how they were like trying to find like a safe place for them to have their rendezvous but they, while they, while they were trying to find, uh, you know, people's apartments and places to uh, have these encounters, they were leaving the digital traces of all of this all over the place. And all of that is stuff that now between Greenberg's cooperation and I'm, I'm guessing third party uh, subpoenas that were probably served on mm-hmm. entities like Venmo, they've got everything. Mm-hmm. which is usually true for these cases. They've got everything. Criminals these days cannot see, cannot hide their evidence very well unless they actually stay off anything digital and operate in cash, i.e. if they operate like a criminal from 30 years ago. But as soon as they start using the internet, all of that stuff's going to come out at some point. And it has here. And then you get wire fraud charges too. And yes, exactly. You, you just ramp, you, you ramp the whole thing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's interesting is reading through this, it now retroactively explains some of Matt Gates's responses to these allegations, right? First of all, that, that he raped an underage girl. 
you have to deny that, right? Because if you don't, your choices are to say you didn't know, which is no excuse, and to say that you think the age of consent should be lower, which is not also a good path to go down. So you have to deny that. But, you know, when he carefully chose his words and denied that he was using that sugar daddy website, we can now see that, yeah, that's true. He probably he didn't. Green, Greenberg did it for it. Exactly. Yeah, Greenberg was the Greenberg was the pimp. Greenberg was the one who was actually going and finding these and finding these women and figuring out what they were going to charge and so forth and so on. And then the other people, the, these other men, were then in turn paying Greenberg. So that Greenberg was the conduit for everything. He was the organizer and sort of the central figure in this uh, in this group of men, of whom Gates is one of them. So yeah, Gates is telling the truth on that. But you're right; like he's he's telling a very selective set of, of pieces of truth. Right, and and uh, which is makes the assertion that he's being blackmailed by someone that much weirder. <laughs> but but yeah, that the, those we can go back and look and now and see that those. Those words were carefully chosen, you know, um, with like, I mean, you how, how do you, you go to your lawyers? You say, how do I respond to these allegations? Right. And that's the kind of thing that they that they yeah, he's been coached. And, he's been coached to do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you a, there's another good example here. He had been previously, you know, he had been previously stating, you know, things like and right now we increasingly it doesn't matter. Like he, he, he basically and first, he was trying to categorically say that he had never had sex with any of these women. He stopped saying that, notably. Mm-hmm. Things he's not saying is denials anymore. Initially, back in the spring, he was saying that he hadn't had sex with any women in, in, involved with Joel Greenberg. Now he's not saying that anymore. I think it's because he knows. Yeah, in fact, he- I think he said something along the lines of, you know, they're trying to go after me for being naughty or something like that. Right. Like, right. And, and yeah. so, yeah, now he's 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 quietly not he's quietly started not saying things that he used to say back in the spring it's because he's being coached you know his he, he's got defense counsel and they are coaching him on what to say and what not to say and they're putting some of these other things out there to make it look like he's denying things because it's optically politically necessary for him to continue trying to deny it but he's picking things that he actually can deny but they end up being meaningless just because he's not the one who found them on the sugar daddy website does not mean that he didn't commit various crimes. Yeah. Which to me implies he did do the other things. Yes. He, you know, In all likelihood. Yes. Sort of... And I'll, I'll add just one other thing, which is that to a criminal prosecution feels like blackmail. Mm. Mm. That's a very so, good point. Yeah, he thinks he's, yes, he thinks he's being blackmailed by the feds. That's who he thinks he's being blackmailed <laughs> by because they're telling him things like, because the, the, the crunch he's under right now is that they're trying to, it, it appears, by me reading between the lines, I don't have this clearly verified, but it would appear for all the world that one of the things that's holding everything up right now is that they're trying to get Gates to cooperate. They're, they're trying to get him to plead guilty and to cooperate with the prosecutors. When your choice set is cooperate and you'll get a more lenient sentence or continue to fight this and we're going to throw the book at you, to a criminal, that feels like blackmail. Yeah, I guess but that's... But that's not blackmail. That's that's not blackmail. That's prosecution. That's the rule of law. That's, now, that's how this works. Yes. That, that's my follow-up question here. Cooperating against whom? Because to me, and a lot of folks I've talked to have said that in this particular investigation, Matt Gates is the big fish. But how far up does this go when we're talking about these sham elections, you know, with Artiles and Rodriguez and 
there was a there's a few of them in Florida. I mean, does this go higher up in Florida politics or are we talking higher up in United States politics to Trump, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, that's where we we really get more into speculation. We know that there are a number of other people that have been connected to Gates and Greenberg and that there's things beyond these, you know, sort of sex parties with, you know, it's the, these these women and sex and uh, apparently some drugs. You know, there's other issues around political corruption. You know, we've got the whole medical marijuana angle. There's a number of other. Yeah, the Pirazzolo uh, verbiage that yes. turned up in his in his cannabis legislation, pretty much word for word. Word right? for word, and then, right? And then yeah. you get a trip to the Bahamas and a bunch of women. And correct. Women. Yeah. So it looks like the it looks like you know the sex offense angle may have been where this starts, but that there's a sort of broader political corruption case that they are pursuing. And that they're going to be put it this way. We don't necessarily have to think of his cooperation as netting a bigger fish than him. He might be the biggest fish, but it still would be from a prosecutor's perspective, helpful to have another big witness who then helps take out like five or six other people, even if they're quote unquote littler fish. So we don't necessarily need to think that Gates's cooperation is to get an even bigger fish than Gates. It might not be. That's number one. Number two is that it could be that Gates is not really, uh, you know, we might want to, I might need to be more careful about this too, that we, we, we say he might when we say he might cooperate, it may be that there isn't anybody else to go get, but that it's simply that they're trying to get him to plead guilty because it makes the because then there isn't as much work to do, right? And then you have the certainty of the guilty plea rather than the uncertainty of trying this case, which would not be fun from a prosecution perspective. This will be a three-ring circus if it goes to trial. Yeah. So as the prosecutor, you would way rather get him to plead. Mm-hmm. and get this over with and have a nice press conference and and get the guy sentenced and declare victory and go home. Mm. Of course, you'd rather have that. Right. So it may be that they're not trying to get him to cooperate. They're just trying to get him to plead guilty in exchange for the leniency. And there isn't going to be any other fish that is worth getting. Now, number three could be, yeah, does this go any quote unquote higher in Florida politics, which I think is usually code for DeSantis. Yeah. And, you know, there are some hints that he's been involved with some of the players in all of this. Certainly Gates and DeSantis are basically, you know, colleagues, I guess you'd say. I mean, they were, uh, you know, DeSantis was a congressman before he was governor. You know, obviously they run in the same circles politically. Do they run in the same circles socially? How much is DeSantis involved in this? That gets into the realm of speculation. Mm. There's other folks that have been digging into the links between some of these people in Florida or among these people in Florida much in much more depth than, than, than I've been able to. It's a lot of people that are lawyers, journalists, and activists in Florida have, have spent a lot of time mining this area. So there's a lot of stuff on that that one can go find on Twitter. As for uh, number four, the national politics, you know, then we start getting into January 6th. Yeah. And we get to start, we get, we start to get into, you know, what did Matt Gates know and when did he know it? How involved was he with the planning of the insurrection? And there's been a lot of reporting on that. If that reporting is accurate, Gates knows quite a lot and is involved and is potentially criminally culpable. Mm-hmm. Now, are the prosecutors in the middle district of Florida in Orlando working on that angle and trying to see if they can get Gates to spill the beans on things regarding January 6th, I think it's possible, but we have no, we have no evidence that that has happened right. to date. Not that I am aware of. I don't know of any. 
However, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, it's certainly and- not outside the realm of possibility. You know, federal prosecutors across different offices collaborate on matters all the time. There is now a, you know, there's no doubt Gates is a, is a suspect in this investigation in Florida. So, you know, obviously there's going to be, there's a, there's a, there's an FBI file on Matt Gates now, and it may be that there were some other, this yeah. means that then, you know, you can go in, type his name into the system, and you're going to see what someone in Washington put into the file about him with regard to January 6th. The two people call each other, maybe they start collaborating on it. There, but there could there could be prosecutors from multiple offices working on that now. We don't know. I, I can't imagine they're not already talking. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, uh, we'll see. you know, I mean, these are big national stories. Yeah, we'll but, see. Uh, yeah, and there's there's certain crimes that you don't let go in a in a in a, a cooperation deal. Like, I mean, Joel Greenberg is a perfect example. We'll get we'll get rid of these weird ancillary nickel and dime crimes, but we got to keep the sex trafficking a minor. We have to keep yes. like these major crimes. And yes. I, I'm assuming that if there is any kind of a proffer with Matt Gates, it's like, look, we got to get you on seditious conspiracy, insurrection, whatever, and child sex trafficking, if that if that is the case. But, you know, maybe the maybe the wire fraud, maybe the fact that you use the Internet, we can let go. But it's it's certainly a, a reduction in sentence when you when you cooperate early and cooperate. Right. Well. So, so it's, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's reduction in counts is usually where you see the change the most, because reduction mm-hmm. in sentence, there are mandatory minimums that you can't go below. So usually in criminal cases, you see it as a reduction in the, in the various counts, the charges that are brought. So, you know, it is possible that, put it this way, what I would hope is that if we do see Gates, if Gates does plead guilty, cooperate in some way or another, if we do see that sex trafficking charge get dropped, I sure hope that it will be in the name of something really worthy of that because he it, it would be really terrible to see him walk from that just because he pleads guilty to something else unless the unless the thing that he's going to cooperate on has to do with things like seditious conspiracy then 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 I could get my head around that yeah. there is still a possibility that these men may face civil suits that is also quite possible, but I guess we'll see what happens with that. Sure. Just because Gates, even if he does cooperate here, he's definitely not out of legal jeopardy. Yeah, and that might be a clue too. If we see charges and, and sex trafficking minor isn't on there and they explain if they if they don't say that, you know, we didn't find that or we couldn't prove that, that might be an indication that there's something much bigger, but we would also be. see that. So, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll, we're just going to have to wait for that. And then I've got about 30 seconds left, Tristan. What is the new time frame? Is there a new time frame? Because it was July, August, but we didn't hear any public reporting, public reporting about that being pushed back with the with the continuance on Greenberg sentencing with his, you know, extended cooperation. Did his extended cooperation push back the charging decision on Gates? Do you know? I think that's pretty that's pretty clear from what has happened. I mean, that that was instantly what I surmised. As soon as I saw that, I made that, you know, I was definitely online saying that, look, we can't, we're not, I was instantly expecting that we wouldn't hear anything about Gates being charged until September. What we're hearing now is that it actually could happen this month. They are very, they're very close to charging him. They are being very, they're taking some very strong stances with him, which basically means to me, it is drafted, it is done. They might edit it a few more times, but there is an indictment. It is sitting in a, it, it is sitting there. It is, they've been going through different drafts of it. And uh, and really the question is, 
Do they roll with what they've got because he's going to go not guilty? Or are they going to do the cut down version because he's going to cut a deal? And that's really the remaining question. And it sounds like from what we've been hearing that it's going to either be within the next two weeks, the second half of August here, or that it could be in early September. But it's sooner than I was thinking. I was thinking we weren't going to hear until more like late September. Greenberg's sentencing date thereby is got pushed to, it's basically around October 4th-ish. Mm. And he could get pushed again, by the way. Uh, it's not impossible. It may be that if some of the other defendants or if Gates plea not guilty sure. and they're going to go to trial, then Greenberg's sentencing might get pushed out until after that trial is over. Yeah, we saw that with Rick Gates yes. and yeah, et cetera. Yes. So yeah, we'll, we'll be looking for that. And I appreciate your time today. And everybody should follow you on Twitter at Tristan, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, Snell, S-N-E-L-L, to follow along with this because you've got some great inside information that I think that uh, most of the mainstream media doesn't have access to. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today, we welcome the author of the new book, Here, Right Matters, an American Story, a key witness in the first impeachment proceeding against the former guy. Please welcome Colonel Alexander Venman. Sir, it's an honor to speak with you and thank you for your service. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. I know many of our listeners and many millions of Americans consider you a hero in this story. And we've all gotten very familiar with the Here Right Matters hashtag. That was just a bombshell of a moment. So uh, we appreciate your time. Now, I've read the book through and I have to say it's extremely riveting. You begin with the call, right? You, you delineate your life into two phases, pre-call and post-call. And you describe the call in detail and how you learned that day what the shadow diplomacy effort was all about, right? What Rudy, Sundland, and Mulvaney had been up to. And after the call, you sought out your brother and made a prolific declaration to him. Can you tell us wh why you spoke to your brother and what you told him? Sure, yeah. I guess first I, I might mention that, uh, you know, the, it's not like the whole thing, the whole kind of uh, nefarious enterprise was revealed in that moment. It had been unfolding for months, you know, with Giuliani and his pronouncements, uh, just weeks before I made my first kind of deep concerns uh, heard when I reported uh, Gordon Sondland's, you know, declaration that there should be uh, quid pro quo an investigation in exchange for uh, a White House meeting. And he he attested to the fact that Mick Mulvaney was driving him. Really, the biggest revelation was that it went all the way straight to the top and that the president himself was responsible. And um, if up until that point, I... My awe and reverence for the office of the president of the United States uh, kind of counseled that, that I shouldn't like, you know, trip, hang this around the president. Uh, after that moment, it was impossible to do so. It was clear that the president was involved. And, you know, uh, as a military officer, it's a, it's a, it's a tough kind of uh, pill to swallow that the president is uh, trying to, to harm the, this, the interest of the United States and undo the democracy, uh, undo our democracy. Um, you know, tilt the scales and and undermine free and fair elections. That that's the that was the big revelation for me. Not that all this stuff was kind of already simmering. And in, in part, that's why I hate referring to him. You refer to him as the other guy or the last guy or something like that. I hate to refer to him as as the president because he did such a dishonor to that office. Uh, but you know, you you, you uh, wanted me to answer the question about my twin brother, uh, who is the senior ethics official on the National Security Council, uh, twins, we were the NSC twins. Uh, it was frankly the only, the first time 
and maybe the last time we will serve in the same place together or certainly in uniform. Uh, it was a unique opportunity. And I wanted to uh, pull him into this uh, wise or not, because I wanted to kind of another, both another set of eyes and another set of ears to, to, to witness what the, uh, my report to John Eisenberg, who I didn't have every confidence in uh, that he would do the right thing, but I'd, I kind of hoped there uh, uh, and walked in with the intention of getting him to counsel the president that what he was doing was awful and probably unlawful. And I walked into Eugene's office. I closed the door, gave him a dramatic pause, you know, didn't kind of like start ribbing him like I, I would usually do. I uh, made sure I had his undivided attention. And I told him, if what I'm about to tell you ever becomes public, the president will be impeached. And that was just, um, that just kind of captured the severity of, of what I had witnessed rather than, uh, you know, prophetic that it was going to happen that way because it was still in classified channels. I had, uh, you know, I had no idea that this was going to become public. I thought that people, the officials I would report to would, would, would sometimes somehow kind of roll back this, um, transgression, this travesty. And, um, that, that was my, you know, that was my intention, but I did not miss in any way the import of the moment, um, with those comments clearly. Uh, And, uh, the rest is kind of history. Yeah. And I, I assume it, it's it's hard to convey the seriousness of what you witnessed to the public because we had been taking a fire hose of scandal from this White House from day one. Uh, and even now, as, as certain revelations are coming out about um, the former guy and the, and, and the Department of Justice, it's kind of hard to talk about the seriousness and the the, the depth of corruption that that was there. And I think that that's kind of by design. I think that was sort of by design. Let's like, like, like drown everything out with just this litany of scandal. Well, that's, I think that's exactly right. Frankly, um, there's an, in you that are kind of sets in with you know, ever increasing scandals. You, you would think that, you know, that it was um, whatever that reporting was right around the time of the election would be kind of like a, would, would separate him from uh, his constituency when, when he was, you know, uh, when he was pretty, vulgar uh, about how, how he treats women, but that didn't seem to, that, that eroded kind of this idea that, you know, there, there are morals and ethics and that continued to progress throughout the entirety of the, um, of his tenure where the bar was set increasingly lower and expectations were set increasingly lower. So, you know, the scandals that you would have thought early on would kind of bring down a presidency didn't. Uh, and there is no, there is no bottom. There is no floor uh, to how far, you know, he's he was willing to go, uh, the kind of damage he was willing to do, to to the country. The good thing is that in a lot of ways he was his own worst enemy, um, and he was just not that competent. And um, if we ha- if he was, you know, if he was a true like, he, you know, he's even if we even if we hang around his head, the fact that he's a villain. If he was a, like a criminal mastermind or, you know, kind of a mastermind villain, we would be in a, a, in a in a much worse situation. But oftentimes, as much as kind of being disruptive to the good order and function of government, uh, he was also uh, destructive to himself, which is frankly, in a lot of ways, his background and his, his legacy is that, you know, everything he, he touches kind of, as Rick Wilson says, everything he touches dies. Uh, it was the same with his business interests, everything along the way. So, yeah. <laughs> ETTD, right. Hashtag, another another good hashtag. You actually mentioned later in the book 
but you 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 address the competency, lack of competency and lack of honesty, professionalism, et cetera, if memory serves there in, in one of the later chapters. And, and this is when you were about to, to go into the National Security Council. And uh, you say you were warned. You knew it was going to be a challenge, but uh, you were also warned. Talk about that. Who warned you? you no, know, it's um, I had a decade, a couple of decades of uh, public service under my belt and had been fortunate enough to kind of achieve uh, through hard work and kind of through a proven track record, uh, ever increasing positions of uh, responsibility and, and importance. And I, in, in a way, thought that I could continue to tri- uh, contribute, even though, uh, you know, this, there's no, I knew who he was even before he ran for office because I grew up in New York City. He had this kind of, you know, this, this, really interesting reputation uh, as a, a, a failed businessman, as a, you know, kind of unsavory character. Uh, but I thought that I could still kind of, you know, offer counsel. I don't know if that was, that was uh, um, pride or ego or hubris. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I, in this regard, I was not entirely successful, although the things that the president wasn't focused on directly, I was able to have a very positive influence on. And that's the legacy of, uh, of a whole cohort of public servants that were able to serve very honorably and continue to keep this country on course and you know, impl- implement a national security strategy as long as the president wasn't involved. It's when the president became involved in these affairs that he wanted us to work on that things got derailed. But I went into the position largely with eyes wide open. Uh, and that's because when Fiona Hill uh, asked me to join the team, I still had about eight months uh, of time that I had to finish up with at the Pentagon before moving, uh, before I was released to go onto the White House. And in that time, before I took the, the, the interview and after that, I, I did some a due diligence. I talked to, to military folks that were there and uh, they, I received a warning that, you know, there is nothing as perilous as this White House. It's a viper's den. People that deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times, like this is this is a more dangerous environment in a lot of ways. Uh, so I went in there um, again. You know, some of my experience counseled that it's a it's a environment that I could successfully navigate. Three years in Moscow was about as far from a picnic as you could imagine. It's it's a fishbowl. It's it's a truly beleaguered environment for uh, an American diplomat, let alone uh, an, a military attaché to serve in where you're constantly under scrutiny, they're constantly trying to uh, trip you up, your uh, surveillance, uh, looking to kind of, you know, um, did, uh, public protests against you whenever you're traveling, all sorts of crazy stuff. So I was in a lot of ways prepared for, for that environment. And uh, at the same time, not quite prepared for everything, but I had all the appropriate warning that I needed uh, to, to at least be armed to be cautious. But on the other hand, I also had kind of an, um, an idealistic notion that, um, you know, I could still do some good. And that's why I went there. That's what that, that's that that's what I uh, that was. That is what I had in my mind uh, when I went to the National Security Council. Yeah. You talk about that uh, quite a bit in the book and, uh, de- you know, dedicated civil servants trying to, to you know, ride it out and, and perhaps do some good in those positions. I myself worked worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs for a very long time prior to the former guy being uh, elected. And I'll put election, uh, I'll put elected in air quotes there. But, you know, even in that environment, down at the GS-14 level, trying to push back against privatization and and all that stuff in, in the Department of Veterans Affairs where I worked. But my 
podcast came under investigation. And and your friend and mine, Mick Mulvaney, had, you know, had uh, announced to a group of donors, hey, we found a cool new way to get rid of uh, government employees. We just move their jobs across the country yep. and force them to quit. Yep. And you'll never guess what happened to me. <laughs> that exact yep. same thing. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the traits you talk about with Zelensky, but I have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Sure. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. We are talking with Colonel Vindman, author of Here, Right Matters. I always get that Right Matters here, Here, Right Matters mixed up for some reason. <laughs> Probably one of the most famous. I think lines. it works both ways. It works both ways. One of the most fa- yeah, it, it, it does. It truly does. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you mentioned a, a few times in earlier chapters, Zelensky's experience as a comedian. And as a, as a comedian myself, I was struck by that. You said Zelensky's experience helped him in dealing with the former president. How did how did you find that skill set applied? Because it was really an interesting observation. Yeah, he's he's a very funny man. But, I, you know, you hit on something kind of uh, implicitly about the book, which is it's not a Trump book. I mean, I, I talk there's a there's an opening chapter to kind of set the dramatic stage. But really, in a lot of ways, the president is a kind of a foil, a kind of like, you know, the the uh, the pivot point, kind of the buffoon, the buffoon pivot point. I have no, I you know, I, I, there should be a sense I don't hold back against this guy that is really an, an enemy of this country. Uh, but that's what he is. And it, it's a story really about how to do the right thing under the most adverse circumstances and the, the you know, the deep portion of my background that contributed to navigating this difficult affair. affair. Um, and in a way, you know, this, this, this question about Zelensky hits on, on some of this because it's because of my experience in, you know, either as an immigrant from that part of the world, from Ukraine, learning Russian and being a fluent Russian speaker, and then being trained as a Ukrainian linguist in the defense language institute, which is something that, you know, the house Republicans kind of missed when they questioned me that the only reason I spoke Ukrainian is, you know, it, it wasn't my, the language I learned at home. It was Russian. It was Ukrainian it was because of the defense language institute. Anyway, I, I had a chance to uh, watch uh, Zelensky whose programs were in Russian, by the way. And as part of my homework on the, on the guy, as he was still campaigning before it was clear that he was going to be the front runner. And I, I made the judgment that he was going to be, in fact, be probably the, the lead candidate. At one point it was between him and, you know, Ukraine's most famous rock star that, you know, the, the rock star backed out and Zelensky played a character on this show called servant of the people where he, he stumbled into being a president and then kind of his escapades about navigating you know, uh, uh, presidency in Ukraine, where there's endemic corruption and tr- trying to do the right thing. And I thought that, you know, he, he both captured the imagination, but he also had the charisma and, um, and you know, could, could translate his, his uh, star power and his magnetism into a successful election run. And he did. And I was in a position to kind of see this coming and, um, you know, uh, listen to his shows and kind of see how those prepared him for his, uh, because a lot of the things he encounters to this day are see, you know, segments of shows that he, he had recorded and um, be in a position to really, frankly, the, the whole goal was to uh, bring the countries together for a common cause, which is to advance the interests of democracy, help the Ukrainians kind of uh, um, shake off a legacy of corruption uh, anti, uh, through um, a vigorous anti-corruption campaign reforms, and all of this in mind for the benefit of the United States, which 
has enormously benefits from a Ukraine that's uh, integrated into into Europe and not part of Russia's camp. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was just going to uh, 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 wrap up with a famous quote from uh, I, um, the National Security Advisor for Jimmy Carter, uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski, where he said, "It should not be underestimated. Uh, Russia without Ukraine." ceases to become an empire. Russia with Ukraine subordinated and suborned automatically becomes an empire. And we were facing enormous challenges from Russia now. Uh, imagine how much, uh, uh, how they might be magnified with Russia, you know, more powerful and emboldened. Yeah, very true. And, and even on the call, Zelensky was able to sort of read the room, which is something that comics have a lot of familiarity with and ingratiate himself to the former, uh, the former president. And yeah, it gives me the creeps every time I have to say president, too, (laughs) because, you know, I'm a former service member and and all that. And so to to see the the office sullied the way that it was is 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 hard to swallow. But I think that that's super fascinating because, you know, in many ways, just to be able to sort of get him on your side, it takes talent. But you talk you talk about everything that sets you up for this experience, because a lot of this book and I love this, a lot of this book goes into your childhood, uh, growing up and then your experience in ROTC and and um, how the Vindman being the Vindman boys were late bloomers. But, you know, when we when we get together, it's good stuff. I think that all I really encourage everybody to buy the book so you can read this background. And and there was a a really a heart like a gut punch, heart wrenching moment when you talk about the loss of, of Sarah and how that prepared you in many ways and sort of changed your your uh, point of view a little bit. Can you talk about talk about that, what happened and, and how that sort of informed you going forward? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you that uh, this is a, a, a difficult topic uh, for, for me and for my wife. And I I, I deflect, okay. I'm, which, I'm, which is what I'm going to do here. Uh, I really try not to think about it uh, because it's you know, probably about the lowest, I mean, it, it was the lowest moment. Uh, I've kind of never um, responded to anything quite like that. Um, it was difficult. And I tend to kind of uh, do what I guess what, what, what guys do, which is, which is uh, you know, suppress and stuff like that and, and think about other things um, and try to still be supportive for, for my wife when she, when, when she thinks about that loss. And it's a loss of like our, our hopes and dreams for a larger family or a loss of, uh, you know, these um, our hopes and dreams for, for Sarah, which we only got a chance to know for a week. Uh, she followed, you know, in a lot of ways, we, we, I take some solace in the fact that things unfolded the way they did. And we ended up with Eleanor, our, our 10 year old, and she's just, it's just an absolute miracle. Lover is the center of uh, uh, our universe. My my wife says that, like you know, uh, she's got me wrapped around her finger. Probably that's true. Um, and things unfolded the way they did, and we ended up with Alan, Eleanor. But that doesn't really entirely soften the the, the blow of. Uh, it's just kind of a way to rationalize that loss. But one of the biggest takeaways is that it really puts things in perspective. What really matters, you know, that mattered. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, serving in combat and people uh, died uh, in defense of this country, that mattered. Um, you know, the relationships that I, uh, I had developed and, and uh, uh, the family support around me, the people face to face that provided support and encouragement through this versus the idiotic, you know, public attacks and the 
you know, I, I took the president's attacks in a lot of ways as a badge of honor, him and, and, and the, uh, you know, Laura Ingrams of the world. I took that as a badge of honor because these are people I have zero respect for and I'm being attacked by them. But at the same time, feeling the love from, from my family and from Americans at some point when, you know, there, there was a means to access me through my, my synagogue and so forth. And I received thousands of letters of support. It's really, really puts things in perspective. And that's one of the things I think I've been very fortunate to have perspective about life, perspective about what matters, perspective about this country in a lot of ways, which is a unique, amazing, wonderful place. Uh, I did this in, uh, this interview uh, with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger yesterday, and just to hear like it was me, him, and Bianca Goldberg, a, a CNN uh, senior uh, political correspondent, and we we're all we were all immigrants, just talking about the wonderful kind of uh, perspective on America and and how, in spite of all of our challenges, this is you know a unique a, a place that still is growing and developing and, and striving towards this more perfect union, but it's the best country in the world. Uh, and I, that's, I benefit from having um, perspective and overcoming challenges and having successes, the, the combination of everything that weighed in on, on the way I manage this, um, you know, my role in the impeachment, frankly. Yeah, true. And and the foil of the book, as you say, the former guy doesn't have, he completely lacks that kind of perspective and understanding. He he can't understand somebody who would do something for someone else or or for a cause bigger than themselves, which led to his disparaging war dead and veterans, as we know from that famous August article that came out last year, which really knocked me upside the head. I'm sure it did sure. you as well. But but also, again, unsurprising, shocking and unsurprising seems to be the theme. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, you know, Jeffrey Goldberg, a friend of uh, my friend, uh, the editor in chief of The Atlantic, wrote that piece. And then he was, you know, savagely attacked by the right. Uh, not all that dissimilar than, you know, to, to my own predicament, where in my case, the White House actually sent out attack talking points, but in the most kind of ham handed manner. Uh, they sent it out not just to the Fox News's and OANN's, they sent it out like to, to, to not partisan networks. And uh, then it made ended up being be, becoming a story because White House sends out attack talking points on an NSC staffer or a White House staffer. Um, but this so the, the the kind of methodology of demonizing character assassination, you know, uh, taking issue with process to distract from the, the, the massive wrongdoing uh, by the president and his kind of proxies is, is a standard playbook. Um, and the same thing that you find in the in the authoritarian world, uh, same kind of methodologies, same kind of demonization of the truth and undermining of, of, you know, of the fact that there are, in fact, like absolute facts, indisputable facts. Uh, this is all kind of out of the uh, uh, the um, fascist authoritarian playbook. Uh, but this the, the commentary on service members, um, you know, I wasn't there at this at this particular meeting, but it does it, it strikes accord with me because there's little doubt that this was said and you know jeffrey goldberg's reporting is 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 very sound that the president would call people that that serve somebody other than themselves than themselves you know selfless servants suckers and losers because he doesn't understand that if there is not a transactional uh, kind of benefit for him uh then it's not something that he's even it's not something it's not even that it's something he doesn't understand um I'm sorry. It's not that he he doesn't want to do it or that he doesn't see a benefit. He just simply doesn't understand the very basic notion 
of serving something other than yourself and 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 uh, that kind of mercenary approach. Yeah, and I think that's um, something that uh, he was passed down to him from his father. And to, to the to their unfortunately to the children also. Yeah, and that's obviously really weird, strained relationships, and and just purely transactional, like you said. And I want to ask before I let you go here, uh, just a couple more questions. One of the big uh, stories that I don't think got enough attention was your your being uninvited to on that Ukraine trip. And I I, I wanted you have we learned anything else about that or anything else new that you can talk about with regards to that particular slight? Yeah, well, I don't know enough about it. And, I, you know, uh, one of the regrets in my, in my testimony is when uh, Representative Sewell, I think from Alabama, asked the question and she said, are you, are you being, uh, are you the target of kind of uh, reprisals and retaliation? And at the time, thinking about my career and how to kind of save it, I said no. And in fact, I already knew that I was, you know, uh, that uh, that was wishful thinking on my part, frankly, if anything, uh, because I already had been the, the target of, of, of retaliation. Um, I'd been, you know, ostracized by the political class at, at the White House. Uh, there was a trip that, the, that Ambassador Bolton had taken uh, to three of my countries in my portfolio that I would, I, I, you know, I, I, the reason that directors travel is to maximize the benefits, to provide kind of on, on the ground support, to, to, under, to add context to whatever the discussions are, to all sorts of different reasons that directors on the National Security Council travel with the principal. And to, to be clear, it's not a very large, a thick layer. You have the National Security Advisor, you have the senior directors, and then you have the directors that lead portfolios. They're the ones that actually are the workhorses that make stuff happen. They convene the deputy assistant secretaries to uh, to kind of um, to synchronize U.S. policy and so forth. And uh, you know, I, I, I quickly figured out that uh, that it was as a result of my uh, expressing concerns about this phone call, and uh, I ended up being. Uh, you know, also disinvited to meetings and other things of that nature. But that was uh, maybe in certain ways uh, working up. The reason I stuck around another several months, uh, if, they, if these things started to unfold in August, I didn't leave until February, is one is I wasn't going to be kind of bullied out of there. And two, uh, I could still work very effectively with my professional counterparts out of departments and agencies, even and still kind of work through uh, in, in a way uh, through even seniors uh, up until John Bolton left and it became more difficult. But anyway, I, I, I could still do my job in, in part. Um, and that's really why I stuck around. Yeah. And I, I think the story at the time was that the former guy actually thought someone else was the expert and nobody wanted to embarrass him. Was that was that an excuse or do you think that was a real thing? No, I think that's that's the real thing. There's a guy named Cash Patel yeah. that, um, you know, was a De- De- Devin Nunez accolade kind of inserted into the national security uh, council uh, by by kind of direction of uh, the president and the president's um, offices, the uh, staff secretary, and uh, you know then was kind of a direct pipeline from what was going on uh, by the professional staff to the political class. And this is an individual that you know maneuvered himself uh, into increasingly senior positions, ultimately as uh, chief of staff to the Department of Defense by by serving in uh, in these kind of like. I don't know. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. You know, certainly kind of a um, by by doing political bidding was elevated. Yeah, he's definitely there uh, leading up to the leading up to the insurrection. 
uh, in the Pentagon there. So then I, I, I'm I'm hoping the one six commission and perhaps at some point the Department of Justice can can look into that yeah. and get get to the bottom of it. Finally, I want to ask you, we recently learned a former guy had a phone call with the former acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen. And we talked about this a little bit at the top of the interview. And this is where he asked him to announce corruption in the 2020 election, much like the call with Zelensky, where he said, you don't even really have to investigate. Just say you're investigating Biden. And I I see so many parallels between the call with Rosen that we got the notes from from the Department of Justice uh, handed to the Senate and the call with Zelensky. Given given your seat at the table during the Zelensky call, what were your thoughts when the news broke on, on the Rosen call? I think the attorneys and the prosecutors would call this a continuing enterprise, maybe a continuing criminal enterprise, I think is a more appropriate. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me the least. I mean, in a lot of ways, the president was encouraged to continue on this enterprise because of a lack of accountability. He was he was not censured. He was not rebuked. There was no, really kind of minimal reaction from a Senate that swore an oath to uphold and def- uh, uh, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, uphold kind of the the basic principles and ethics and values of of uh, good governance, and they abrogated that responsibility. And I think in, that encouraged the president to act with impunity going into uh, the COVID pandemic. And there's little doubt that, if, for instance, if the president was removed, that Mike Pence would have handled it much better. Because he, he was a, a, a kind of a, a more in the ilk of a, of a um, standard chief executive, and he wouldn't have downplayed COVID, COVID and we would not have had 600,000 dead. And that's something that, that's to me, it's a, uh, that connection is as clear, clear as day. And then the economic mismanagement by trying to downplay COVID when it could, be dealt, could have been dealt with a swear, a, a severely and mercilessly to take to to handle this uh, pandemic, and then into a, uh, a inflaming protest in the summer, and uh, you know, seeking to kind of inflame a base that that uh, was concerned about losing their position in American society, and uh, you know, the 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 uh, black and brown and the minority populations kind of having had enough and um, being. The, being victimized, uh, standing their ground, the president seeking to inflame that instead of kind of add ointment and and uh, and provide a sucker to the kind of to the to the to these um, hardships, and then going into stealing the election himself because the that's who's trying to steal the election. Donald Trump attempted to to but failed to steal uh, an election by propagating this lie that there was. Um, all sorts of election interference and, and election wrongdoing, which didn't exist by all accounts uh, and was was uh, proven to be to to be false and hollow. And then launching an insurrection, you know, violent insurrection to retain power. So, to me, that is a you know absolutely clear logic link from from the beginning to the end. Yeah, it's all connected. I've yeah I've been saying. You know, people are like DOJ investigate, DOJ investigate, arrest Trump now. That's a massive case. If we if we start all the way back, we can we can even maybe start back in 2016 with Russia. But uh, clearly, that line between the Zelensky call, COVID, and the insurrection and the big lie, it, it, it's a it's just a bright shining line to me as well. And so I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. And again, send send some love over to NatSec Hobbyist. 
Rachel, who's just a if, if, if you're not, I'm pretty sure every single like 100 percent of the listenership of this show is already following her on Twitter. But if you're not, you can you should create a Twitter account just for the purpose of following both you and Rachel. And I, I really do appreciate your time today. It's been a, a, truly an honor to speak with you. I consider you a hero. And uh, everybody here, Right Matters is available now. You can grab it wherever you get books. And uh, it's a wonderful read. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. S.W. Media.